It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I can start with some warm greetings from your sister church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, which I, as I've walked around, I've realized so many similarities between your church and ours, roughly the same age church. Uh, Center City congregations, probably most importantly, you believe the same gospel as the people who started you. And we believe the same gospel as the people who started us. Praise the Lord. Uh, and uh, my, uh, my text this morning is Psalm 90. Uh, so if you could go ahead and turn there, and uh, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing of this time we have together. Our Father, we know that your word is powerful. We pray that it would do great work among us this morning. We pray that you would open cold hearts and encourage weak ones, convert hearts that are not yours, and that, uh, that we would be receptive to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being here makes me think back to my very first visit to San Francisco, which was not a good visit. It was a difficult time for me. I had just started dating a friend of mine from college and was visiting her for the very first time. And being a stupid young man, I completely messed things up. I botched the visit. So I was probably more surprised than I should have been when a few days later, I got a letter from her. We were very old fashioned. We just wrote letters back and forth. Uh, and she basically said, I don't think this is working. Uh, she, said, uh, she said the distance was just too much. So my heart hit the floor. And I went into work that morning. And uh, I had just arrived at work when my, this was before I was a pastor. I was in business. But my colleague came literally running down the hall, burst in my office, said, Jamie, we need someone in Sacramento for a meeting this afternoon. Do you think you could go? I thought, well, that's close enough. Yes, absolutely. So then I, I had one of those delicious conversations you don't get to have very often in life. I called her up. And I said, I got the letter. She said, yeah, I'm so sorry. I just I think the distance is too much for us. I was like, so is this the kind of thing, like if we could have dinner tonight, that you think we could work things out? She's like, yeah. It's like, I'll pick you up at 7 o'clock. <laughs> and... Uh, and I went to my meeting, and I drove to her house afterwards. And we had dinner at Park Chow in the Sunset, which sadly, I think, is now closed. And uh, the relationship didn't close. And we worked things out. And 20 years later, we are happily married and have three kids. Yeah, a happy ending, right? You are wonderful to preach to. Thank you. Well, I, I share that story first because I love that story. But I share it mainly because that's an example of the kind of hope we often look for as Christians. And it's not the kind of hope the Bible gives us. Happy endings in this life are not what the Bible offers. It offers us something much, much deeper and better than that, which is what I want to look at this morning. So you see the title of the sermon this morning is Hope in Darkness. I think when we think about hope in darkness, we often essentially think things are really bad, but I know God is up to something, and the good times are going to roll really soon. 
like my first trip to San Francisco. But what I want to see in our passage this morning is that the Bible gives us hope that isn't maybe things are going to get better, but is much deeper, more real, more certain. And I think a good question for us to think about together is, is your hope as strong as what the Bible gives you? Well, our passage I mentioned is Psalm 90. Go ahead and turn there. You're going to be helped if you follow along because we're going to spend a lot of time in this text this morning. I think it's on page 285 of the, the little blue Bibles in front of you. At least it was for the one I had. Right at the top of the psalm, you see something distinctive about the psalm. It says, it is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Right? Lots of psalms written by David, sons, uh, sons of Asaph. This is the only one written by Moses. Moses, born in slavery, raised in the palace of Pharaoh, exiled, age 40, called by God, age 80, to rescue his people which God did through Moses as he decimated the most powerful nation on earth and rescued his people out of slavery. And now we're 40 years later. And 40 years later, these words really function as Moses' last words. After all that he saw in his very long life, what kind of hope is he going to give us? Well, before we get into the psalm itself, let me just give you some context And like is the case for many of the Psalms, that context is really on two different levels. First, we have to understand context around which this Psalm was written. Uh, To pick up the story, God does rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, and he brings them to the edge of their promised home. But they rebel. They give in to fear. They refuse to enter. And so God consigns that entire generation to wander in the wilderness until every one of them is gone. Those are the last 40 years of Moses' life, watching as one by one those people would fall dead in the desert, his brother, his sister, his wife, his friends. I wonder what it must have been like to watch God's judgment in slow motion playing out as an entire generation, your entire generation, returned to the dust. I think very often graveside theology is our best theology. That's what we get from Moses. That's one layer of context. The other layer of context is how does this fit in with the rest of the book of Psalms? Um, Psalm 90 comes after what I think is probably the low point of the entire book of Psalms, Psalm 88, which ends with those chilling words, darkness is my closest friend. What a way to end a psalm. And Psalm 89 really is the corporate version of that same psalm. So then the editor who's putting together the book of Psalms, where, what does he select for Psalm 90? Well, he gives us a psalm of steely-eyed realism for life in darkness and a psalm of hope, the psalm of Moses. So this man, Moses, this man who spoke face to face with the living God, who saw the glory of the Almighty with his own eyes, and yet who for 40 years was steeped in the theology of death. What hope is he going to give us for those who walk in darkness? Well, let me read Psalm 90 to you from the beginning. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. 
in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses' prayer speaks of the tragedy of life, and yet it also speaks of real hope, just like his own life. I think verse 15 really encapsulates everything going on in the psalm. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Whatever hope there is in the psalm, it is a real and tested and gritty hope that we can bank on. So where is there to be found real hope in a dark world? Well, Psalm 90 answers that question, I think, in three, heart, in three parts. Those are the three points for our sermon today. Number one, we find hope as we remember our true home. Number two, as we reflect on our mortality. Number three, as we rely on God's mercy. So that's the wisdom from Moses, the man of God. So first, remember your true home, verses 1 and 2. These opening verses paint a contrast, a contrast between the God who is everlasting and us. It says, who fade and wither as grass. It's a contrast. It's also an invitation. It's an invitation to make this everlasting God our dwelling place. I think it's amazing that Moses, of all people, would have written these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. But just think about it. Moses spent his entire life looking for home, didn't he? First as a refugee in the palace of Pharaoh, and then as an exile from Egypt, and then as a wanderer in the wilderness waiting to get to the promised land. And yet for Moses, home is not the Egypt he's left. It's not the promised land he's going to. For Moses, home is God, isn't it? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. 
How can home be a personal being instead of a place? I think we all resonate with that in some way. For me, home is where my wife is. So yesterday, she was here in San Francisco. So San Francisco felt a whole lot more like home than an empty house in Washington, D.C., and now she's gone, and so I'm waiting to get home. I think we understand what it means for home to be someone. Well, in the same way, for the Christian, God is our dwelling place because with him, our hearts are at rest. With him, our striving to make our own way in life, to prove our own way in life, to to save our own souls, that striving is at rest with God. That's the Christian gospel. And so with God, wherever we are, we are at home. And I think it's significant. This is where Moses begins his psalm. He begins with this idea because, brothers and sisters, we do not have the resources in our own selves to stare down the gritty reality of this sin-stained world unless we first fix our gaze in the unchanging eternal rest that God has made for us in himself. And God, our rest, he does not change, does he? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's amazing, isn't it? This home, this dwelling we have, this God we have is unchanging. He is self-existent. He is dependent on no one and nothing. He is beyond the reach of time. He is eternal with no beginning and no end. All life, all creation, all change begins with him. But our God is forever unchanged. And so this God, who is your God, is the only secure dwelling place for you. He is the only secure refuge for you. Homes decay and nations fall and fortresses crumble. But the peace and rest that come from rooting our lives in an eternal God, nothing can touch. I was reminded that just driving here this morning. I've driven 101 probably 100 times in the last 20 years. The buildings are always the same. The names in the buildings always change. Nothing is secure. Nothing but our God. You, you have got to understand this if you're going to keep your head in a crazy world. God does not change, and we can make him our home, our dwelling, our rest. Maybe this morning, here this morning, you're not a Christian. You're very welcome here. I think I can say that on behalf of this church. I know I can. I wonder if you see this around you as well, this lack of stability, that nothing is secure, as the physicists have put it, the entropy is winning. You, you see that, you know that, but you also see something in your heart that wants security that wants certainty. And and history is littered with people who aim that desire at pillars of sand that gave way. And my message for you is that there is a reason you have that desire. It's because you were built for God. He is unchanging. He alone can be trusted. So my friends, don't, don't make home to be this unstable world that overpromises and underdelivers. Find your rest in God. When you're feeling the bitter reality of life in this world, you can, like Moses, remember where your true dwelling is, where it always has been, where it always will be. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You can fast forward to the very end of the movie, so to speak, and fix your gaze on what's eternal and unchanging, and then keeping your heads in the clouds, 
You can step back down to earth like Moses does and face up to our next imperative for finding hope in darkness. Number two, reflect on your mortality, which is verses 3 to 12 in this psalm. These verses are completely unembellished, unvarnished, and frankly, unattractive in their portrayal of life in a fallen world, and yet very real. This is what we live in, which I think is so characteristic of the Bible, isn't it? This is how the Bible speaks. It's, it's not some kind of otherworldly spirituality that denies the reality of pain and suffering in this life. But neither is it some grim-faced existentialist who essentially says, life is terrible, deal with it. No, the Bible describes reality in a fallen world and also hope in a fallen world, which is what we're going to find as we get into the rest of the psalm, beginning in verse 3. As I mentioned, verse 3 to 12, these are all about our mortality. It uses the language of Genesis 3. When God curses mankind, it says, return, O children of man, to dust. God is everlasting, praise the Lord, but we are not, are we? We know that so well. And if we're going to grasp real hope, we have got to grasp this idea of our mortality. What do we need to understand? Well, let's just step in these verses together, see what Moses points out. Verses 3 to 6. Mortality is not simply that we will someday die, but that life is fleeting. Like grass, Moses writes, that's renewed in the morning and withered by evening. Such a picture of life, isn't it? Every, every generation rises up with vigor and ambition and enthusiasm. And the morning it flourishes, convinced that they at last will solve all the problems of the world. But that dawn is always a false dawn. And for every generation in the evening, be it 70 years or 80, as Moses says, it fades and withers. As one person said, every, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. In verse 7, this mortality that we experience is not an accident. We are brought to an end by your anger, Moses prays to God, because of our sins, in verse 8. This mortality that we have earned because of our sin this curse of God on the world because of sin, it flavors not just death, it flavors all of life we see there in verse 9. All of our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 10, the span of our years, or more literally the boast of our years, it says, is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. So what do we do with our mortality? Do we ignore it and run away from it like our culture so often does? Well, no, at the center of the psalm, Moses gives us two responses, one in verse 11, one in verse 12. We'll take that one in verse 11 first. We need to consider the power of God's anger. That's not a verse that you're going to tie around your door, is it? But we need to consider the power of his anger. Too often we pretend like this curse of mortality doesn't exist or that it's the exception. We shrug it off. We hope for better times. We deny its reality. We try harder. Sometimes we even appropriate Christian language to do the same thing and say, well, if you have enough faith, then you can get rid of the problems of this world. Now, that's not the Bible. Whether you're here this morning as a Christian or not, remember that a failure to consider the wrath of God is the ultimate blind spot of the human race. 
It's like in one of those Star Wars movies where they're flying through some strange planet only to discover it's not a planet, it's some galactic monster. But the one thing they had never considered turned out to be the only thing they had to consider. So do you account for this toil and trouble in your family and your work? Or do you assume somewhere deep inside that if you just play your cards right and you do everything right by the rules, you can attain perfection and happiness? What implications of your mortality are least accounted for in your life's plans and your ambitions? That's response number one. The second response is there in verse 12. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to live consistent with our mortality so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Uh, If you're under the age of 20, which I guess is you guys right here, I think this is especially written to you. Uh, When you are older, you are going to be wiser. Like Life just kind of does that to you. It's automatic, almost. But when you're older, you won't have nearly as much opportunity to use that wisdom, will you? Wisdom has an expiration date. And so Moses says that those who most need to remember that life is short, those who most need wisdom because life is short, are the young. You need wisdom today. Not eventually I'll get there 10 years from now I can get wisdom. You need wisdom today. So pray for wisdom. James 1 says if you pray, God will give you wisdom. It's an amazing promise. Uh, Surround yourself with other people you trust who are wise and godly and learn from them and get wisdom by knowing the Bible well. Don't, Don't wait until you are old to be wise. Remember, wisdom has an expiration date. You need wisdom now. And before we leave this topic of mortality, I think it's important to remember that this mortality that we have earned because of our sin, this is a mortality that our Savior Jesus Christ chose to take on himself because of his love for us. Just let that blow your mind for a moment. We're so familiar with what we see here because this is the life we live. He didn't need to do this, but he did it because he loved us. His years weren't even half the 70 or 80 that Moses writes of, but they were still toil and trouble. His years, verse 9, did not come to end with a sigh, but with a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And whereas for us, embracing this reality is simply facing up to life because of our sin, for Christ, embracing these realities was an act of mercy because of his love for us. Isaiah 53, he chose to bear our griefs. He chose to carry our sorrows. Oh, praise Jesus for coming and inhabiting this psalm for us. But what a woeful end of the psalm if we stop there, right? Buck up. Life is hard. Pray for wisdom. Is that all we get? And how do we reconcile verses 1 and 2 with what we just saw? How is it that our only dwelling place, our only shelter, is the very God whose wrath our sin has provoked? That brings us to point three, our third imperative for hope and darkness, verses 13 to 17. 
rely on God's mercy. These last five verses, as it turns out, are the mirror image of what's come already in the psalm. You want to stick your nose in your Bible to, to follow this through. It's interesting to see. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord. A plea for mercy in response to God's judgment parallels verse 3. Return, O children of man, to dust. Then the divine mercy of verse 14 satisfies in the morning with your steadfast love corresponds to that divine wrath of verses 7 to 10. The days of gladness in verse 15 correspond to days of decline in verses 4 through 6. And the establishment of our work, verses 16 and 17, mirrors the establishment of our dwelling place in verses 1 and 2. And that parallelism has meaning to it. The meaning is that wrath is paired with mercy. Verses 1 to 12, that sober assessment of life, those are all truth, and yet wrath is paired with mercy. Decline is paired with gladness. We will return to dust, yes, but God will return to us. They come together. That's the Christian outlook on life. This is the great secret of the Christian faith. We do not say that happiness in God comes through prosperity, like Islam does or the so-called health wealth gospel. We do not say that happiness comes as we deny our desires, as Buddhism teaches. We do not say that happiness comes apart from God through self-reliance, as the religion of our secular culture would say. No, we say, we say that the curse of sin is real that God's wrath against us because of our sin is real. And yet, we can be rejoiced. We can be glad all of our days. We can see that the false dawn of verse 6 can give way to the true dawn of verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love as we rely on God's mercy. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've seen this. Have you seen that the joy of your Christian friends seems to be somewhat independent of the reality of their circumstances? We Christians don't always do this well. But if you know a Christian for a long time, you should be able to see this. This is what has brought so many millions to faith in Christ, probably in this room. You have seen evidence that this faith we proclaim is in something, or rather in someone, far deeper, far more substantial than any circumstance you have ever encountered. Have you seen that? Because the, the fact is that we have, all of us, across this whole human race, chose to sin and rebel against a holy and good God. God said, we're made for this. We said, no, thank you. I'm going to go this way. And so our lives, even the good things we do, profane the goodness of this God because we don't want what he wants. And because he is so good, he will not let those lies about him stand. He will call us into judgment, the Bible says, because he is a good God. He is a just God. And yet in his goodness, he is a merciful God. That's what we see in these verses. And in his mercy, he sent his own son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and yet to die, not because he deserved to die. He's the only one who didn't, but because we did. And he died in our place. And he offers forgiveness, forgiveness that comes as we repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we get a forgiveness 
We understand a love of God that is far beyond any circumstances we could ever experience. And that is how our joy does not go up and down with the veracities of life. This gladness, this satisfaction comes as we rely on God's mercy to see God himself, which you need to understand in these verses. We're satisfied by him. We see that in how these verses really cascade from one to the next, almost like a waterfall of mercy. That waterfall starts there in verse 13, as we depend on God alone. Where does real hope begin? It begins with that plaintive cry, verse 13, have pity on your servants. We have nowhere else to turn. We are at the end of our rope. We know that, God. All we can do is hope in your mercy. Satisfaction and gladness don't come from some kind of moral formula, like church attendance plus regular Bible reading plus being faithful to your marriage equals joy. No, it's, it's the mercy of God as he chooses to return to us. And how does he return to us? Well, that's the very next verse, verses 14 and 15, as he gives us himself. He gives us his steadfast love that truly satisfies. He gives us his steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And how will we experience his steadfast love? Keep going. Verse 16, as we see his work, God's steadfast love is to show us the glory of himself. What better thing could he show us? What he does is he shows us his work. But how do we see God's work today? Verse 17, as he establishes the work of our hands. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? We are God's ministers. When, when he proclaims the gospel, so often he does it through us. When he encourages or exhorts or rebukes, so often he does it through us. As he establishes our work, we get to see his work. And so we are satisfied with his steadfast love, even through the toil and trouble of life in this dark world. That is how God returns to us in his mercy. But the focus of these verses is not the work of our hands. It is the God who made our hands. Our work matters because it reveals his work, which reveals him. He is the one who satisfies. I wonder if that's your conception of Christianity. I remember uh, talking with a young man in the aftermath of his adulterous affair. And as we were talking, we together realized that his conception of Christianity basically boiled down to, I need God so I don't end up being like my dad, who apparently was a pretty dreadful person. That's a laudable desire. That is not Christianity. It might be a good step toward faith in Christ, but that is not faith in Christ. Christianity is not, I need God to have meaning, purpose, community, freedom from addiction, and so forth. Not, I need God to have, but I need God. That's what it means to be a Christian. The, the gifts of God may change. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But God never changes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Rejoicing in darkness, verse 14. Gladness in darkness, verse 15, comes as we are satisfied in God. 
as we are satisfied in his love for us, which he demonstrated most supremely at the cross of Jesus Christ. Is your soul satisfied in God alone? So where is their hope in darkness? Is it the hope that the darkness will someday lift? Not in this life. The forces of our mortality, verses 3 to 12, are strong and unyielding. No, hope is not an expectation that life will someday be comfortable. God nowhere promises that. But an expectation that in mercy, life will reveal God, who is far better than comfort. Hope is that he is our true home, verse 1 and 2. That through our work, we will see his work so that we may understand and enjoy and be satisfied in him. He is our hope, and in him, we will never be disappointed. I think we should conclude by just thinking, considering how Moses got hope out of these words. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. What would have satisfied Moses the most? Well, to get to the promised land, right? Which he never did. Then there's verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants. Would Moses yet again see another great power like Egypt crushed under God's mighty hand, another Red Sea parted? Well, there would be another Red Sea, we read in the book of Joshua, as God's people walk through the Jordan River on dry ground. But by then, Moses is dead. In these last 40 years, he will never again see the work of God like he once had and establish the work of our hands. Well, Moses knew that the people he poured his life and heart and soul into would not stay faithful. He knew they would rebel. He says that in the book of Deuteronomy. So what came of this prayer in Moses' own life? Well, these are actually not Moses' last words. For Moses' last words, we need to look beyond the book of Psalms, beyond the death of Moses, to the New Testament, where we read of Moses' last words on earth in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. Let me read Luke 9, verses 28 and following. Now Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses' last words on earth were discussed with Jesus, his imminent death on behalf of his people. Now think about that in light of Moses' psalm and relish the mercy that God showed to his servant Moses. Satisfied in God's steadfast love? Well, Moses not merely had the privilege of standing in the promised land. He stood there with the steadfast love of God incarnate, rejoicing not all of his days, but beyond his days. Let your work be shown to your servants. Moses saw with his own eyes the great salvation event of the Old Testament. And now he discusses with Jesus the greater salvation event of the new that would rescue God's people, not from tyranny of slavery in Egypt, but from the tyranny of sin, from death and mortality itself. 
establish the work of our hands? Surely not the way Moses would have anticipated. But here before him is the ultimate fruit of his work. 1,500 years later, as God's people have tried false gods and found them wanting, as they have tried human saviors and found them wanting, as they have tried God's law and found themselves wanting, and now they are ready for Jesus. And my friends, what God did for Moses, he will do for us as his people. Yes, we live in darkness, this darkness the psalm describes so acutely. But in darkness, there is hope, not the uncertain hope that maybe things will get better, that maybe comfort will come again. No, the certain hope that even in the darkness, God of mercy is establishing the work of our hands to show him himself and to bring us to his home. Do you believe that he is worth that much?